Welcome to the Terawatt Space Podcast. This is Aravind. In this podcast, I speak to entrepreneurs, innovators, and thought leaders to demystify Earth observation, satellite data, and all its applications. Today, we are zooming out from Earth observation a little bit and going to focus on a subject that I think is very important for the future of EO, space sustainability. We are launching more Earth observation satellites than ever before, and the progress in space tech has meant that any individual, organization, or country can put up an instrument in space to collect data for scientific, commercial, environmental, or strategic purposes. But how sustainable is that? To discuss this, I had Crystal Azelton, Director of Application Programs at the Secure World Foundation on the podcast. The Secure World Foundation is a non-profit organization whose aim is to develop and promote ideas and actions to achieve the secure, sustainable and peaceful uses of outer space benefiting Earth. In this episode, Crystal and I discuss the state of the space environment, the threats and worst-case scenarios, what regulations exist and how effective they are, the similarities with climate policies, why every stakeholder in the Earth observation sector should care about this topic, and more. And now I bring you Crystal Azelton. Hi, Crystal. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. So I'm going to ask the same to you. What's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, I, I came to space through a, a kind of odd path. Um, I was definitely a space nerd when I was a little kid. I went to space camp and I collected all sorts of things and was really just excited about it. But at 17 years old, I was just smart enough to realize that I probably wasn't going to get to be an astronaut and that I didn't really want to be a scientist, that I, I was more interested in policy and what science can do and, and, and space around every, you know, like how it works. And so I ended up pursuing another one of my passions, which was foreign affairs and government. And, and I worked a, abroad in international development and governance for a number of years. And then I, after a few years, I said, oh, this is really great, but I actually wish I had done something with space. And, and hey, now I realize that there's this thing called space policy and there's international law around space. And there's all these things that are very much what I'm interested in. And I was able to sort of take some of my skills that I had developed, um, you know, project management and, you know, understanding of how governments work and parlay that into a consulting job at NASA and from there, it's just taken off. Um, so in, and it's kind of all come full circle because now some of the things that I was passionate about, you know, foreign affairs, but also even development and sustainable development goals, uh, which I think your audiences would be very familiar with, you know, it's all really relevant. And so I think it just goes to show that if you're passionate about something and you're interested in it and you pursue it, that it often does end up connecting in the end. Let's talk about your uh, the place that you work, the Secure World Foundation. Um, I don't know how many people in the audience would have heard of it. So would you mind giving an introduction to, you know, what your organization does and what your role is within it? You know, what your activities are? Just a quick overview. Of course. So in Secure World's kind of a unique little a little spot in the space world. So we are a nonprofit. Um, we are based in the United States, but we work globally. And we have one very broad, but very specific mission. And that is to promote cooperative solutions to ensure a safe, secure, peaceful, sustainable space environment. Um, we believe and we know that space has incredible value, whether we're talking about space exploration and transfer technologies and the inspiration that comes from that, but more specifically and more practically, you know, the, the value that we receive from satellites on orbit, from the data that's generated from those satellites, you know, 
that is, that is critical for life on earth. And in order to make sure that we don't experience problems, you know, we absolutely believe in focusing on this idea of space sustainability, which is a very broad concept and people definitely just define it differently. But we really look at it as anything that's going to contribute to that long-term goal of a space environment that we can use and use in a safe, practical, reasonable way um, for future generations. And so space debris is obviously a really big topic that I'm sure we'll come back to. But so are other things like spectrum and space weather and international space law and commercial best practice. Um, you know, we, we keep it broad on purpose because the goal here is really to be able to explore and value and, and derive benefit from space. All right, fair enough. And what what's your role at the um, at the organization? Do you work a lot with Earth observation? Because you know, I'm curious because your your title says director of space applications, so that can mean you know different things. So I want you to explain what that means for for the audience as well. Absolutely, yes. Um, so director of space applications, uh, we don't do data, so it can be a bit deceptive for those who work in that field. But what we're really trying to get at is that why question. So if we're going to tell people and organizations and companies and satellite operators that they have to behave in space, that they can't just do whatever they want, whenever they want, for as long as they want, we have to talk about why. We have to make sure that that value that we cite as important here is actually happening and that it's happening in an effective and efficient way. So my job at Secure World focuses on, on space applications in the sense that we want to make sure that laws and practices and procedures and, and the infrastructure is in place so that the downstream you know, market and, and all of the Earth observation users and others can actually continue to do that. And so in that role, you know, I serve on a number of advisory boards, NOAA's Acres Committee, for instance, looking at how the United States licenses commercial remote sensing. Uh, but I also serve on the Group on Earth Observation Program Board, which is a multilateral organization that's very much focused on making sure the data is accessible and open and available um, to everyone around the world. So we really support that. Um, another aspect of it is this communications idea, this idea that you know, we as a space industry have to communicate our value if we're going to influence policymakers and stakeholders and even the public. And so I work on a number of initiatives in that area. And then the last thing I do is um, I'm also the conference chair for our Summit for Space Sustainability, where we try to bring together all of these communities to talk about all of the issues that I was citing in terms of what the secure world is actually interested in. All right, sounds uh, sounds very exciting. I wanted to, you know, take a step back and, you know, talk about what the state of the space environment is. So could you give a, an idea uh, for the audience on, yeah, what the state of the space environment looks like today, especially with related to space sustainability? So it, it's a mixed picture. Um, you know, obviously, when we talk about the space environment, we're very concerned about the growing debris problem. Um, and, and debris continues uh, to get to be a problem, to get worse, uh, whether we're talking about spent rocket bodies, whether they're talking about satellites that have been essentially blown up in orbit, whether we're talking about just little pieces of junk that come from we don't even know where sometimes. Um, so space debris is, when people talk about the space environment, is absolutely one of the biggest issues that we have. And it is a growing problem and it is absolutely of concern. I think many people have heard of the Kessler effect, which is a theory that we could get to the point where if we have so much debris and other objects in space that we wouldn't be able to maintain a clean environment, that we would be at risk for collisions of all different types. Um, and then this is absolutely a concern. Um, there's a growing commercial, you know, set of commercial satellites out there. It's so exciting what's happened, especially in the last 10 to 15 years where we've seen this, you know, this explosion. Um, and, and all of that coming together has really led to not just debris, but also active satellites on orbit, 
uh, particularly in, in the low Earth orbit area. And so in that sense, there there's a lot. I, I get a lot of questions is like, how close are we to, to disaster? And that really just depends, right? It depends on the orbits. It depends on the circumstances. But, but the overall concern is that the space environment um, is growing threatened by this issue. There's also issues around, say, spectrum. You know, as we put more and more satellites up, that aspect of the environment is also can also become a challenge. You know, we have interference from from bands that are very close to each other. We have bands that are getting very full, uh, you know, or are overutilized or underutilized. And so when we talk about sustainability, we talk about the environment, we do have to remember there are also those issues. And then space weather is another thing to think about. Um, space weather, we're in the middle of... Um, the upswing of the solar cycle, which means there's more solar activity, which means that satellites can very much be affected. And we've seen that. Um, we recently, just last year, there was an incident where Starlink lost, um, you know, launched satellites at an what ended up being an inopportune time when it comes to solar activity and actually did lose a number of satellites due to that. And so we would consider all of these sort of challenges that currently exist in the space environment itself. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, the the two aspects that you said at the end, uh, I don't think they had a lot of attention, spectrum and space weather. I think space weather has probably started to get a little more attention after the SpaceX incident. Uh, but because SpaceX is SpaceX, I don't know if that really mattered as much to them. Um, but if it, you know, if it was the case for a commercial company whose existence relied on, you know, that satellite or a bunch of satellites working, I think that would have been, you know, disaster. And also on the spectrum front, um, I think we were at the conference recently and there was a a uh, paper pre- presentation by um, someone from Airbus who talked about um, the interference or let's say the growing problem with the expand uh, between the telecommunication sector and the observation sector. And that was kind of eye-opening, um, at least from my perspective. And yeah, I think there are aspects that don't get a lot of attention. Um, but I want to talk about like the legal environment. So what does it look like today? Uh you know, could you talk about what the status quo is with respect to regulation? Because it seems like things that need to be regulated a lot and where we need to have a lot of laws in place, but it doesn't seem like it. It's definitely complicated, right? Um, so so the legal circumstance uh, circumstances around the space environment, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Um, you'll hear some people say, oh, it's the wild, wild west up there. And, and I think that's kind of silly. That's not the case. Um, but it isn't to say that there aren't challenges and that there aren't problems and that technology is definitely getting out ahead of the at the speed of which governments and other organizations are able to respond. So, I mean, the basic thing that we always like to talk about is that sort of national governments are essentially the responsible bodies when it comes to this. So whoever's the launching state, whoever's licensing the commercial satellite or another type of satellite, that is who has the ultimate responsibility for ensuring that um, the international laws are followed. And then also best practices in that, that we, you know, because it's not all going to be done through absolutely hard law. Now, there are a number of treaties that were negotiated in the 70s and 80s. Um, that give us sort of the basis for that. So we have, you know, great treaties around, you know, the Outer Space Treaty, um, but also, you know, rules around astronaut recovery. And then there's a number of internationally legally binding um, mechanisms that that sort of provide the overall basis by which the authority of national governments is, is continued to be derived, but also the responsibility. 
And then there are a number of best practice documents. And these can come um, from international bodies, such as the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, a few years back, after years of negotiation, put out the Long-Term Sustainability Guidelines. And that's a document that, while not a legally binding treaty, is absolutely one of the basis for understanding what responsible behavior in space looks like. And countries are continuing to implement and incorporate those principles into their own work. You also will hear reference a lot to the 25-year debris mitigation guidelines. Um, There's a lot of talk right now that those need to be updated, that perhaps those are a bit outdated from the current commercial environment. But the idea is that these norms of behavior that are often first put into guideline documents then eventually can maybe someday become a a legally binding treaty, or maybe they don't need to. Maybe governments continue to work with operators to create national regulations where appropriate, and operators also have incentive to generally behave in a responsible manner. And so that's also where some of the sort of may not be considered legal in that sense, uh, but there is a lot of action being taken by industry itself in a number of forums to, to sort of say to themselves, you know, what should our standards look like? What should our best practices look like? But at the end of the day, ultimate authority rests on nation states. And there is absolutely challenges right now. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Starlink has a lot of satellites and, and trying to understand, and other corp, um, constellations do too, trying to understand what countries need to do, one, to internally manage um, that, but then also how to coordinate internationally. Um, because there's a lot of questions about what that's going to look like. Um, so when so in looking at this, I, I think it's both positive in that the basis of responsibility and acknowledgement of that responsibility is is absolutely there at both the international and the national level. But that isn't to say that in the you know as technologies get grow and and happen and change, uh, we're absolutely seeing a lag behind which the government is is a little the governments around the world are are struggling to keep up um, in terms of what is actually needed, and so. It's it's a give and take. Yeah, and it makes me wonder if this is similar to the climate change negotiations that we are having on an international level today. Are there parallels? Can you see parallels? Because I'm thinking this is kind of what's what governments go through when we are talking about climate policies on an international level. And I feel like this is basically taking it to the next level um, and talking about, you know, standards in space. Is that is that a parallel there? Can you see anything? It is. I would say there are definitely some parallels um, in terms of the fact that at least at the basic level, um, we can all agree on this. I mean, certainly climate change can be controversial, um, but it, it, there's still a basis of understanding among governments that this is a problem, that it's real, it's pressing, and it needs to be taken care of. And, and we, we enjoy that same acknowledgement when it comes to the space environment. There's nobody out there who's saying, eh, no, space is fine. It's gigantic. Don't worry about all those satellites. Like that's you don't hear that. So in that sense, I think there's a, there is a really good parallel. There's also just the obvious link between sustainability on Earth is dependent on sustainability in space and vice versa. And so in terms of the actual negotiations, I think the form is a little bit different. Um, there is definitely interest in building out some um, forum to talk about, yeah, what can our guidelines be? What um, do we need to update the guidelines that exist? Where are we going? And, and there is a pressing and growing call to extend those negotiations, you know, just, um, you know, just recently, the United Nations Secretary General released the outer space brief for the summit of the future, which is a huge UN wide organization um, initiative that does include climate change, and space is being included for the first time. And they're trying to give a structure to 
understanding that a new framework is necessary to deal with with a lot of these. And and I think one of the other struggles is that space has typically been a nation state domain at the international level. And so they're trying to figure out how do you incorporate companies, particularly as many of them are not just putting up the satellites themselves, but they're also the leaders in terms of what some of the technical solutions are going to look like. You know, as we look at orbital debris removal or better understanding of this space situational awareness environment, like really understanding the data itself, companies are at the forefront of of developing those technologies and and looking at what they are. And so trying to bring that together and figure out what that multi-stakeholder conversation looks like is, I think, very similar. I would also say the need is, while pressing and concerning, um, it's not at the level that climate change is, right? The urgency is real and is 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 there, but I but I also think that to a certain extent the the climate change emergency is has a different a different feel to it in terms of, of who participates in those conversations. The space world is still a bit technical; it's it's still closed off from some of that, and it doesn't have that widespread understanding that we see on on issues like climate change. What does the worst case scenario look like today? Because um, obviously people hear a lot, but what can happen if we don't act, well, you know, anytime in the future? What was the worst case scenario? I mean, the absolute worst case scenario is something like the Kessler syndrome, that if, if we don't start thinking about debris removal in a very serious way, which I, which I think we are. So I, I don't actually think that the worst is going to happen. I think we're well on the path to avoiding the worst, but you can't deny um, that that's an issue. And and so we, we are growing the number of satellites at a very fast rate. Everyone's heard of very large constellations, which are going to and and have provided an incredible value to people around the world. But space clearly can't, doesn't have the capacity for all of them. Now, what the carrying capacity of space actually is for those kinds of constellations, that is, there's no answer to that yet. That that is something that is still being looked at and understood. So I would say that the worst case scenario is that we don't make the effort to understand that. Right, especially at the international level, because these are mostly companies that are doing this. There, there is some interest from actual national governments themselves. But if we aren't making that effort to coordinate and assign and 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 figure out how that's going to look, kind of similar to what we did in geo, right? Like there's only so many geo slots. So we do have a system in place for understanding how you put your where you put your geostationary satellites. And we, we are going to need to have something similar that the, the, the science isn't the same, like the considerations and the capacities that they don't, they don't mirror right there. But in terms of having a system in place to figure out how we're eventually going to manage this at the international level, that's really important. And if we don't do that, we could end up with a nightmare scenario. I mean, that it is not impossible. I think it's unlikely, but it's not impossible that if you just keep putting up large constellations and your normal set of satellites and new commercial EO satellites, um, low earth orbit in particular, and, and Middle Earth, or what I would, you know, the, the two, those two, you know, really could get to a, a very disastrous point. Um, but the good news is people do know that and understand it. And that's not in these companies' best interest. It's certainly not in government's best interest. And again, unlike climate change, it's a very tangible problem, right? Like it's it's a very fragile environment and no one's denying that. And so understanding it now, assigning responsibility for the current problems, you know, Five years ago, it was really hard to get a national government to take responsibility for the idea of spent rocket bodies, which absolutely pose a risk, right? Because it was only a few nations. These were, you know, fairly long time ago that most of these were put up there. And you couldn't get anybody to even, you'd just be kind of like, nah, nah, we're not going to talk about that. Like, let's talk about something else. 
But you know what? Now that the technology for potentially removing those is come along a long way, I'm already seeing huge changes in the tone of those conversations. And I think that's really positive when it comes to avoiding the worst scenario, because essentially if we ignore it, it could get really bad really quickly. But the signs are there that we we don't intend to ignore it, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. It seems like we are on the path towards building or finding some solutions. But what do those solutions look like? What are the solutions today uh, that, that are being built or, you know, researched? Yeah, so there's some really exciting things. Like I get asked a lot, you know, what is the one solution? And I love that you said solutions because it's absolutely going to be more. There isn't one solution. Regulation is a huge part of that. National governments need to step up and continue stepping up and understanding, you know, they need light touch regulation. We want to encourage industry. We want to encourage academic institutions to put up CubeSats. We want to encourage everyone who's currently engaging in space to continue to do so. But governments need to understand where the technology is going, put those regulations in place. And there's interest in that. As I said, my biggest criticism is that it's just slow. It's slower than it should be. Um, on the academic level, uh, there's absolutely interest in studying this. Like we understand the problem, but we don't at the same time. You know, anybody can look up. We are we have a growing understanding of the problem itself, but we don't have a perfect understanding of it. You know, I mentioned orbital carrying capacity is a place where there's a lot of interest. Even just the effects of space weather or understanding where debris actually is, there's a lot more that we just need to have better understanding. So continuing to support research into those topics is huge and often a little under under focused on, if, if you know what I mean. And then obviously there's the technology itself. And so companies and operators need to continue to figure out what best practices look like and implement them with or without regulation. You know, that's in their own best interest. It's certainly in the interest of their customers. And we've seen a lot of, of growth and focus on that in recent years by a number of associations and organizations around the world who are trying to get out in front of these issues when it comes to best practices, but also standards. Um, there's a lot of interest. Secure World for a number of years was involved in the Confers Consortium and still is just not running it to to think about um, servicing for new technologies, you know, for things that we haven't been doing and, and what does standards look like there. And then the final and the most exciting area is the actual technological solutions itself. And so there are companies like ClearSpace and Astroscale who are looking at debris removal, but there's also companies like OrbitFab who are looking at satellite refueling in space. And there's companies that are looking at satellite servicing like Space Logistics. And there's even companies that are looking at, um, you know, like Heo Robotics. It's looking at how do you utilize satellites to look at other satellites to have better information about these kinds of things. And so, you know, all of those things need to continue to progress if we're actually going to get ahead of this. It's no one thing that's going to solve this problem. It's all of those things. Yeah, it sounds exciting. It sounds like there's a, you know, a plethora of solutions there. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, move on to Earth Observation and talk about what the impacts of everything that we've talked about on Earth Observation is. It should be clear at this point, but could you lay out, you know, why if, you know, you're an Earth Observation company, whether you're a satellite operator or a downstream analytics company, or even an end user, why should you care about, you know, everything that we talked about? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier, right? Sustainability on Earth is reliant on sustainability in space and vice versa. And so that entire set of users, um, yeah, from the actual end user to the middlemen, to the actual operators themselves, absolutely need to be concerned about this. And 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 frankly, uh, more aware. Satellite operators, okay, if you're a company, you kind of know, you know about this. But at the same time, a lot of the really exciting advancements in Earth observation are being done by fairly small companies who don't have a lot of people who are focused on this. So yes, they understand it. But I wouldn't say that they are in the 
position right now to be terribly engaged on what some of these solutions look like. If you have a staff of 12, you probably don't have a government affairs person in that mix, you know, and that I think is a problem because it's many of these new technologies and these new satellite concepts that are, are potentially at risk here. Um, and the, and the same with, with downstream users and end users. Um, one, if you're investing in this in a solution, you need to understand what the risks are. And it doesn't mean that you, ch- you should choose a different thing, but you do need to understand what that looks like. Um, one company called Leo Labs has this great report that I always send people to, but they have like the bad neighborhoods report where they really actually lay out like where it's more problematic than others already. And, you know, you know, do people check that? You know, if I were, if I were thinking about a new data source, like that's the kind of thing that I would at least want to understand. Am I in a riskier situation or in a less risky situation? And that's really important. Um, there's also just the aspect of communication and support for this. As I said, one of my biggest frustrations right now is not the awareness at the broad level of these issues. It's the speed at which we're trying to find solutions. And I, I am sometimes frustrated that we're not able to move a little faster. And so I do think that part of this is that, you know, everyone who is reliant on this data is a part of that conversation. You get action when you have a need, when you have a problem. And what I don't want to get to is that worst case scenario where we don't pay attention to this or where we have a huge, terrible incident. You know, we didn't really talk about that, but there is a, there is a possibility of like a really horrific collision or a really bad anti-satellite test. And we can talk about that as well. And then you get action, right? But that's that's not an ideal scenario. And in this community, um, in addition to just understanding their own risks, has a role to play in, in encouraging potential solutions. I mean, I never want to terrify anyone, right? Like, I don't want to be like, oh, your data is just going to disappear one day. That That's not the case for the most part. But there is a resiliency question. Is it resilient data? You know, are you dependent on one satellite? Are you dependent on one system? Then you do want to understand the risks of, the, of that particular environment that it's operating in. You know, when you're when you're coming into the industry and you haven't thought about it, I think these questions, um, if you hear if someone's hearing for the first time, actually terrifies them because you know it's it's not it's not something that they have thought of, and then suddenly they they think that oh you know I'm just relying on this one data source for my operations, or if I'm monitoring my assets, or you know creating my insurance models, whatever the end user use cases, it you know it doesn't seem very yeah very good for them but but i wanted to ask you so if you're a satellite operator and you know you're working in your position there what would be the best case scenario that you would expect from the satellite operator what do you expect that they do or be aware of what's the best case scenario I mean, the best case scenario for satellite operators is that they're just as engaged on the policy and awareness raising front as they are on their technical solutions. And and I, I understand the challenge there. But satellite operators um, generally understand the risks. Like, don't get me wrong. It's rare that, you know, they, they operate in a very technical, highly scientific, highly exquisite environment. They, they understand and, and they do engage um, from a technical standpoint, but on a policy standpoint, that's where we also need to make continue to make change. And that involves investment. When I say policy, I don't just mean regulation. Policy covers a whole range of things that need to happen, whether it's best practice guidelines at the international level, like we spoke about, whether it is new regulation at the national level, or whether it's simply investment you know, by the, by governments into, into these, these areas. And so I think for satellite operators, um, becoming more vocal, and not leaving these discussions to really large satellite operators. Like you're not, you're not going to not have engagement from the big boys, right? <laughs> you know, if someone's running a very large constellation or they've been in space for a very long time, like they have people working on this. 
Um, but the, the folks that have less satellites or are smaller or newer, um, understandably, this isn't necessarily their biggest priority. But if we're going to affect change, I think that that has to change. And so for me, the best case scenario is that, you know, groups like ours and others who work on these issues help find ways to provide those avenues for all satellite operators to participate in the appropriate policy discussions at the national and international level, and that they take the interest and, and awareness to, to do so. Um, because if you, you know, a good example is there's, there's a number of companies that are really investing in SAR right now, which is a really exciting, you know, newish kind of depends on how you look at it application. But the risk to those satellites and the value of those satellites and the risk to them are not exactly the same as different types of constellations. And, and there are there are subtleties to that. And so just continuing to engage at various levels of government and not just when it comes to, well, I need my my remote sensing license or, yeah, I need to figure out who I'm going to sell to. Understandably important. Um, but when it comes to these larger policies, understanding that they're all interrelated and, and that they do require engagement. Um, and I think the last thing I would say is also that I, I think I, I would, I would hope that constellation operators or, or just satellite operators in the case of just one or two become more vocal broadly, right? Like this is an international issue. And one of the challenges is then there haven't been that many avenues in the past for them to take a part in international discussions. And there's sometimes a reluctance to say, well, we don't want to get involved in politics, especially geopolitics. And like, look, I understand those risks. I mean, we've all seen what's been happening, you know, in the Ukraine conflict, for instance. However, that case study, your story, what your data is doing, what you're putting out, your customers that you're helping save lives or change, you know, change how we understand climate or whatever it is your particular system is doing, that story needs to be heard. And I, I would, the best case scenario for me is that it's, so it's, it's about a practical engagement, like what are actually the solutions, but it is also about a more messaging engagement. And there can sometimes be a reluctance to speak up because they are so dependent on national governments to give them all these things that they need. And yet this is such an important voice in larger conversations around what we're going to need for space sustainability. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting because what you're saying, you know, reminds me of the, there are two things that we need to be aware of. One thing is something that is internal to the community in terms of what we can do, what we can change. But then there are also a lot of external factors that, you know, come into the equation. Um, you know, you talked about the role of governments, but also, you know, what's happening in space. So it seems like there are quite a few avenues that companies need to be aware of. So could you expand on what kind of aspects, you know, we, we touched on a few things that we can change internally, but then from an external point of view, what do we need to be aware of in terms of what can happen? Sure. So a great example is the anti-satellite testing. Um, so this is a, a, a very concerning risk. Um, it's been going, you know, anti-satellite testing has been going on for, for decades. Um, if you're interested in the actual data of that, Secure World puts out a wonderful open source threat assessment of counter-space capabilities. It's completely free and it is essentially the biggest most comprehensive compilation of everything we know that's public, i.e. not classified. Um, and it really gives you a sense of what countries' capabilities they're developing. And, and we're not trying to make the argument that countries shouldn't develop these capabilities. But Secure World and a number of others around the world are very concerned about the propensity to test anti-satellite weapons of a kinetic and direct ascent nature. That is a huge problem. And, and we saw um, a, a lull for a long time where countries had kind of stopped doing it. 
And then recently, you know, we've seen an uptick in those kinds of tests. And there are definitely different ways they're done. India, for instance, conducted one in 2019, very much made an attempt to minimize the debris, but there's no debris creating situation that is ever good. So, you know, they, they did their best in the, in the context, but it still created a lot of debris, much of which is still up there. The Russia test in 2021 was conducted, frankly, in a very irresponsible way. Um, it was conducted as a, as I understand, and mind you, I'm not a technical person on this, but because it was also um, counter orbital, it kicked a huge debris cloud up that was not confined to its area. It threatened the ISS, it threatened planet, it threatened Starlink, um, just as some examples. So this is a, a trend that we do not want to see continue. And the United States and 13 countries have recently, just in the last year, agreed, you know, voluntarily, non-binding, but still have come out and said, we are not going to conduct this kind of test anymore. If we need to test our capabilities, we're going to use modeling. We're going to use something that does not create debris. They're not saying they would never use them. And that's, you know, that's also a concern, but they are absolutely committing to, we're not going to needlessly create debris in an environment. And so that is actually a very active issue right now that we are very interested in encouraging commercial entities to speak up and say, yeah, great idea. Like we support our country government not, you know, making this commitment to not commit anti-satellite testing because it puts us in very real danger. And so that's an example of a place where that can be a public commitment. That can also be internal lobbying to the government to say, hey, great idea. Please, you know, please join this. It's, it's a fairly popular initiative. Um, but, you know, we would love to see more countries join that and, and commit to it. And, and of course, like there are equity issues here. I understand, you know, many of the countries that have now signed up have conducted these tests. That's unfortunate. They're not doing it again. We don't want them to do it again. And so I think there is a role for commercial to say, hey, we're a part of this environment, too. And this is very much in line with our interests. And so finding those opportunities to speak up and support um, can really be can be influential because there are countries that are concerned about well if we do this then we're eliminating ourselves you know we're limiting our own capabilities but it doesn't have to work that way and I think the more they hear from stakeholders to say yeah this is a great idea please do not do not make it worse than it than it already is huge opportunity right there yeah yeah definitely a lot of things coming up that can probably change things and hopefully more countries sign up um, to this to this uh, well hopefully binding agreement at some point. Uh, I want to move on to the risks of adoption of Earth observation, um, you know, based on all the problems that we've discussed. Are there, you know, are there customers or there end users who should be worried? Uh, do they need to be worried uh, based on what you have discussed? Because when I work with end users, they're looking for reliable solutions. You know, when you're looking at an insurance company or an agriculture company, you know, they want to use satellite data, but they want it to be reliable. Um, do you think based on what we spoke, they have something to worry about? Or to what extent do they need to care about all this? Because at the end, you know, they are changing their processes and they're, you know, they're making them dependent on satellites, probably more so than before. So they do have a risk. They do. Um, they absolutely do. I, I would say we're at a critical juncture, which is probably not the yes or no answer that anybody wants. Uh, but I think we're at a critical juncture. I certainly would not encourage any user, end user to consider these threats to the space community, the space environment to be a reason not to incorporate this data. Um, because part of the problem is that the threat that's immediate is also a somewhat unpredictable. You know, I mentioned bad neighborhoods. Look, there are places where it's more, we're more at risk than others. Um, and they can certainly look into that. But it's, it's you can look at the statistics all you want. The reality is, if we had a major incident, if we had a, a, a very serious um, a, a test that was even worse, if we had a very serious collision, like we know where some of those risks are, but that's part of what we're learning, right? 
And so I, I wouldn't say that there's any one particular source that is like, oh, that's the one, right? That's what I would go. And I would also point out that certain services are much less at risk, right? So low Earth orbit is a much different situation than, you know, PNT data that you're getting from a different place. And, and there I would say the risks are very different. They're very minimal. I certainly would not encourage anyone. There's concerns there, but they're not of the type that should really be concerning. I think it comes down more to, to imagery and, and to this extension of satellite internet services. And, and, and there I would say we're at a critical junction. You know, ask me again in a few years and I might have a very different answer because I think we're at the point where steps need to be taken, are being taken, and, and all of it's very encouraging. But if those steps stop or we don't make progress fast enough, then I might have a different answer where I'd say, hey, yeah, you guys might want to make sure you've got a backup plan here. Um, so right now, no, I, I don't think there's any end user who should stop and say, hmm, no, don't think I'm going to try this because there's a risk. Well, there's a risk to a camera. There's a risk to any kind of data that you're going to incorporate into your workflow. And I would key, I would say those are all fairly on par. What I would say is their interest and awareness is vital to making sure it doesn't become a problem. Um, so that's where I would say we are at this moment. And hopefully we take the actions that that doesn't change and even gets much better in the future. Um, yeah, that's where I would say we're, we're about at right now. And it's good for them to be aware of it. It's good for them to take into account these things and to think about investment in the solutions and how they can become an active participant in that. And also there's things that we cannot do without space. So, you know, you work with a lot of folks who are integrating this into their, into new ways, but frankly, we've already done that in so many places and I'm with you. Like I'm so excited and I think it's almost endless possibility of where space data can be valuable and can be incorporated into industries and development and global initiatives around the world. But the reality is we're already dependent on it. You know, we understand, we wouldn't understand climate change to the extent that we do if it wasn't because of the data that we derive from space. So in some ways the ship is also already sailed. <laughs> you know, we're already dependent on it and that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they need to be aware of that. And that goes back to another discussion. We can have another episode about how good we are about communicating all that. Um, and I think from an end user point of view, I think it also makes sense for them to be, you know, interactive and be engaged within this conversation, because maybe some of them can participate in, you know, making that change happen, because one of them can be a big conglomerate who just decides to depend on, you know, satellites or launching a new satellite constellation or depending on a new satellite constellation for their future business strategy, right? So I think they will then come and, you know, hopefully make change happen. So I think that's kind of what I hope. Um, one question that I think I hear a lot from people, uh, especially from those outside the sector, um, I think they're probably just probably read too much doomsday kind of headlines and seen <laughs> pictures of the space debris uh, that's printed on 2d even though you know it's supposed to be a 3d thing uh, that popular visual that goes out everywhere um, you know they just ask you know what are we really doomed is there really something wrong you know it's, it's similar to again going back to the climate change uh, yeah. alarmist kind of headlines what are your thoughts on that and you know how should we spread awareness about this because this is important and you know we should also be realistic like you said yeah it's, it's such an interesting question because it's like the bane of my existence right because in some ways debris in particular is is easier for people to understand you know they've seen the movie gravity like you said they can see the 2d rendering the, the basic idea that a thing can run into something else is is very understandable and approachable um, and obviously a lot of the press around very large constellations has also increased the number, the quantity is also easier for people to understand. So you're absolutely right. Um, when this is reported in the mainstream press or as just people learn about it, 
it can be very easy to sort of freak out, to sort of say, oh, it's tomorrow is, is, is the day. And um, it can be frustrating because you're absolutely right. I want people to understand this problem and engage with it, but I don't want them to overreact. And, you know, it kind of goes back to your last question. I would say we're at a critical juncture. Uh, we're at a moment and we're seeing action that is generally positive to make it so that that doomsday scenario is not going to happen. Um, but we aren't at zero risk either. Um, you know, we are already in a place where absolutely a catastrophic event could happen. It's not going to knock out everyone. I mean, that's just not how the physics work, as I understand it. Um, so it, it, it cuts both ways. I also think that there is a tendency in media or as people engage, they want the simpler stories, right? Nobody likes to hear that it's complicated, that the answer is all, you know, like what I said earlier, they involve all these people doing something. Um, and so, you know, whenever I talk to reporters and we talk to anyone, you know, we try to put it in that context to the best that we can. Um, but yeah, I always encourage people to understand, yeah, this is a problem. But I also think that, you know, sometimes that then leads to, well, then just don't put any more satellites up. Not helpful, not the answer, not going to solve the problem here. Um, so I always just encourage people to understand, yeah, we, we have concerns, very real concerns um, that need to be answered, but there are also practical limitations to keep us from getting to that doomsday scenario. You know, I get asked about very large constellations a lot and I'm like, look, yeah, I'm concerned hundred percent, but I also work directly with a number of these companies and like, they're not going to create a situation where they can't make money. I mean, they're investing a lot into this. And so everybody is fairly invested in finding what these solutions are. Now, we just got to make sure they all come together in an efficient and effective way. But again, it's not because people are ignoring this. And I, and I think that would be my message to anyone who is overly concerned about it would be, look, this is getting attention. You know, my organization 15 years ago, we were focused on getting anybody to talk about this. It was like, can we just even get anybody to say that debris is an issue? That is not the problem today. You know, you can't go to a space conference or something else where they're not talking about these issues. The question is, well, what do we do next? And that is, of course, where the sticking point and the hard part is. But that is where we're at. We understand enough of the problem that we are actively taking action. And we just need to encourage it and keep the tools and the pressure on to do that. That is the stage that we are at at this moment. Yeah, 100%. Um, makes sense. I want to talk about the state of Earth observation before we wrap up. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on general thoughts on the state of Earth observation? We're obviously seeing a lot of satellites being launched, new technologies being demonstrated, uh, commercial companies launching constellations of satellites. And of course, you know, some also for political reasons, we have satellites being launched. So what are, what are your thoughts on just on the Earth observation market? Seems like the market's exploding, but then from a space sustainability point of view, should we be worried? So, I mean, I think it's exciting, you know, as someone who's really enthusiastic about space, like, you know, we always say it's a care world. We don't do this. So space is cool. We do it because space is valuable. But the reality is space is cool. And it's so exciting to see some of the promise of Earth observation continue to grow. I mean, this a lot of this is not new technology, right? Like some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. And to actually see the promise that's been in the works for decades now, and that we're finally in the place as a community as a world, with the support of industry, with the support of government, with the exciting entrepreneurship that we're seeing, I just think that's great. Because many, again, many of these things could have been launched in the 1980s, <laughs> and they weren't, for a lot of reasons that we don't need to get into. But to see that happen, to see that explosion, to see the interest in the STEM community, I mean, just, you know, universities putting up little CubeSats that teach people about space and, 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 and build skills. Um, to see custom-built satellites. I mean, I'm excited to see kind of the reverse effect, right? Like there's satellites that can do so, you know, constellations that can do so many things. 
you know, but we're also seeing, you know, I think GHG sat and methane sat, you know, looking at very specific problems in the climate change world and like then building something quite specific to address that problem. That is huge. I mean, that that opens up doors that, you know, did simply did not exist. Um, and then, you know, you and I touched on this a little bit already, but there's the, the utilization of this technology hasn't even really begun to be tapped. I mean, I worry about the challenges to adoption, but at the same time, I think we're only going to continue to see more innovation and more opportunities. And the more and more we focus on global challenges, but even just at a research level, you know, I just had a paper published with a, um, the team, a team from Georgia Tech and the Gates Foundation, where we were looking at how satellite data was used to help with a polio vaccination campaign in 2015 in Nigeria to make it more effective, right? That's health. Um, I used to work in democracy and governance. You can use satellite applications to run election, help run elections monitoring programs so that voters can have confidence in the outcome of their election and that you can understand problems and, and how to set it up better. I mean, there's just, that's so cool. And so for me, it's, it's, it's a great place. Now, is it all going to be successful? No. Um, and, and I do worry some about the narrative around when we don't have success, right? Because I think a lot of times when something fails or a company doesn't work out or whatever, it's like, oh, that was a bad idea. I'm like, mm, maybe, sometimes, or maybe it was just a poorly run company <laughs> or, you know, the government didn't invest enough money in what needed to happen um, in order to make something happen. And, you know, the fluidity of continued government investment in core essential technologies and then the growth of commercial industry, which I find very complimentary. Sometimes I get asked, you know, do those compete with each other? And I'm like, well, people act like they do. But in my opinion, they work very differently. They come from different places. The investment in them is very different. And the agility, the flexibility of the commercial industry that doesn't exist in government. And yet the government's ability to build exquisite machinery over a long period of time with a, a very different kind of investment. I think you need both. And I'm really excited to see us get to the point where both tracks are advancing in very positive ways. Um, and I think we're only going to continue to see that. So you touched on the adoption and, you know, the potential of the technology. So from your perspective, why is it mainstream? You know, you mentioned it's been available for 20 years, 30 years, or, you know, the Landsets were launched in the 70s. So it's 50, more than 50 years. So why is in Earth Observation mainstream? You know, I always talk about weather and how weather is the most mainstream uh, application of space. Uh, but apart from that, from an imagery perspective, it hasn't gone as mainstream as weather comparably. Why is it the case and how do you see it evolving in the next few years? Yeah, um, I'll start off with a short, a small story. So in 2010, I was a monitoring and evaluation manager on the ground in Afghanistan doing stability projects, working with the Afghan government, with the military, with other nonprofits to try to do positive um positive projects around the country. And we had to operate in places that were obviously not very safe at times. This is a custom built circumstance for the value of earth observation data. And, and I wasn't an earth observation person, but in those days, um, and look, I was perfectly aware that there was data out there that would help me do my job, but we weren't in a position to make that happen. I had a job. I had things to do. My time was filled. Like I did not have time to go and figure out this other thing that I was vaguely aware was over here. Um, now that's changed. Mind you, that was 13 years ago. So uh, I don't think that would be the case today. But the example is that I think this is actually about more, it's, I think people often say technical issues 
or they cite awareness. But I actually think it's more just about the day-to-day of adopting new practices and how do we educate at an earlier stage? How do we build these skill sets into those who are working in health around the world, into those who are working in humanitarian assistance, into folks who are building bridges, you know, whatever it is. I think it has to be integrated early into the education system because for me, one of the biggest barriers is simply time and availability. Um, yeah, there are other barriers. Licensing is a huge issue sometimes. Um, the technical access is also can be an issue, but most of that has at least been, has been solved or is, is, is possible to work around. But for me, the, the, the thing that's standing in the way of widespread adoption is unlike weather data or PNT, I think is another good example. It's not just a data point. It requires analysis. It requires, it, it is a more involved process to make use of that. And I think we underestimate the need to teach whoever is either purchasing or downloading the data how to actually do it and what to do with it. Um, I think people think of it as, you know, we're geeks. We love this stuff. We just put it out there and they will come. Unfortunately, it's not as easy <laughs> as the newest phone. You know, the, the adoption is just different. And I, I think we, un- especially in the commercial side of things, but also in the government, I think we under undervalue just the capacity building that needs to happen around the world, which is unfortunate because that's not a, there's no easy answer to that either. Um, but I think the more attention that we put on the fact that people do want new data, they want it, but they don't have the time to figure it out for themselves in so many cases. And I think that is a very under talked about problem. I think in the earth observation world, we often talk about the money, the licensing, the, the, the mm-hmm. portals or the access and all of that is hundred percent true. But we forget that, you know, there's nobody out there who's like, I am a geospatial analyst and I don't have data. And if you just give me data, I can make it work. Like that's, there's no person out there like that. The, 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 the new end users, the expansion cases, they have different expertises and we need to add this skill set to their toolbox. Yeah, no, 100%. I think that's a very interesting observation. And, and I call that the change management problem where usually companies have, other organizations to do change management for them but then with earth observation those organizations don't exist um because we just you know give the imagery like you said and expect them to make their own change um which usually doesn't work um fair enough uh is there anything that we don't talk about enough in earth observation we touched on a lot of subjects including you know the major subject being space sustainability but anything else come to mind Oh, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, I, I definitely beat this access drum quite a lot just because my personal experience is is very real there. Um, I do think I would highlight communication a little bit. Um, as you said, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. Um, but I would highlight that I think the observation world does not do a good job of telling its story. I think we focus internally. Again, it's that data geek aspect. It's the, of course, people know this. Of course, people understand this. Of course, they see how space is you know the value of it, and I just don't think that's the case. And I'm actually concerned in the opposite direction. I think the trend is going in the wrong direction. That we assume everyone loves space because it's cool, and yeah, there's some truth in that. But there's always been questions. Well, why should we invest in space when we have problems here on Earth? And if you work in the industry, you understand the answer. But are you communicating that answer as much as you possibly can? You know, do politicians understand where weather data comes from? That matters. It matters for investment. It matters for all these space sustainability policies that we're talking about. You know, do people understand where PNT data comes from? Do they understand why we understand climate change? And and look, not every single person in the world needs to have that exact link. But if we aren't careful, they'll the headlines are going in another direction. The headlines can often be about billionaires in space and launch 
and exploration, which look, I'm excited about too. I'm not criticizing those activities, but I think that especially with the next generation, I see a trend of space doesn't matter. Um, a good example is, is, is climate change. Going back to climate change. I did several events in the last few years on space and climate change. I have another one coming up with you. Um, and it is not infrequent to get questions about not how space contributes to the solutions for climate change or the understanding of climate change, but how space is contributing to climate change as a problem. You know, rocket launches create emissions. Some, yes, but if you put that in context and then you actually look at like specific rockets, like they're not even putting out the emissions that people like in the MEMS online claim they are. And that's really concerning to me. So that narrative that's developing on focus on Earth, not on space is concerning to me. And I, I do think the Earth observation world needs to be more aware of that and more plugged in because I'm, you know, I'm spending some time internally working on this because I, I do see it going in the wrong direction. And I think we in the space community often don't pay attention to this, that we just think, oh, people like us, everything's great, you know, whatever. And I don't know that that's the case anymore. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, you're kind of preaching to the choir here. And, you know, it's it's kind of been the focus of also the reason why I started the podcast was to communicate about at least focusing on Earth observation, what it um, what it's bringing to the world. All right, a couple of questions to wrap up. Uh, what's coming for uh, Secure World Foundation in the in the short term? Anything, you know, any specific work or activity that you want to highlight? Absolutely. So the one that I would highly, um, that's, you know, kind of coming up right, right away is the Summit for Space Sustainability. So if you're if someone in your audience who maybe hasn't thought about space sustainability, they want to get smart on it, they want to engage on it, they want to talk about some of these topics. Um, one, Secure World in general, we work on this all the time. So always reach out to us. Uh, but we do have our Summit for Space Sustainability coming up. That's going to be in New York City on June 13th and 14th. We're going to be looking at a number of these topics, really giving people the opportunity to engage with this community um, looking at the international governance aspect, looking at the financing and investment aspect, even like looking at cislunar and and what's happening in the in the moon and here in between the moon and and what you know what's going on there and what do we need to be thinking about? Um, that's also a fully hybrid event, so if someone you know can't make it to New York but they're interested in it. Uh, we do offer that available online, and I definitely encourage everyone to to engage. Um, we see this as very much of, of interest to this community, and as we said during this whole podcast, we want to raise awareness there. Um, so I would definitely highlight that. That's the Summit for Space Sustainability. It's all over Secure World's website, so it's fairly easy to find. Other work that I would highlight is in general um, working, you know, Secure World works to work with governments, work with companies, work with end users. You know, we are a nonprofit and we are here to reach out. So rather than highlight a specific project, you know, I would open the door and say, if this has piqued your interest, if you're one of those satellite operators, it's like, yeah, I don't have a government affairs person, but Crystal, I'm interested. What can I do? You know, send me an email. I mean, this is this is what we're here to help facilitate. And, and the same on the user side. I mean, engage with those organizations that are out there. You know, Growth on Earth Observations is a great example. Um, and so Secure World, you know, wants to find those pathways for people to get involved and to participate. Uh, we're in the process, for instance, we were talking about anti-satellite weapons, uh, we're in the process of actually putting together a, kind of like an open letter um, where we're hoping to get satellite operators and end users to sign up to do exactly what I was talking about, which is like put their stake in the ground to say, yeah, we support this initiative. Because one of the things is like, yeah, they don't, they don't have the time to go to every governor around the world and tell them they do. So we're trying to find that avenue. So if that's of interest to your audience, definitely reach out to me because that is a, another project that we have coming up that we will be looking for for folks to, to get involved in. All right, sounds good. I'll link your website and 
your profile on the show notes. Uh, anything else, Crystal, before we close? Anything else you want to add? Nothing other than it's really been great to talk to you today. Um, I'm really excited to see, you know, I, I always enjoy your podcast. I learn a lot from it. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what questions and what engagement we get uh, based on this. So we encourage everybody, as we said, it's not it's not time to panic, but it is time to pay attention. Brilliant. That's a, that's a good note to end the podcast on. Thanks, Crystal. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.